questions about covenant baptism, please feel free to see me or one of the elders after the service, and we can talk with you about it. Um, If you have your Bible, please open it to the book of James. James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Religion. Let that word go through your minds. Religion. What comes to your mind when you think about that word? Religion, religion, religion. Does it give you the warm fuzzies or the creepy crawlies? Which is it? Is it good or bad? What do you think? What do you think many believers in our country think about that word religion? They don't like it. It's seen as a negative. It's seen as righteousness or rules that can lead people away from God instead of to God. One commentator says, religion, we feel, is what is left when the spirit leaves the building. That's what one person thinks. Religion, we feel, is what is left when the spirit leaves the building. And yet, James must then get that memo because he uses religion in a positive way in his letter. He doesn't see it as a bad thing or a negative thing. He says in James 1, beginning in verse 26, if anyone thinks his religion, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not brighter his tongue but deceives his own heart, his religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What do you think? He is doing there. He's saying that pure religion has practical and tangible manifestations in a believer's life. And for James, there are three practical manifestations of pure religion. To brighter your tongue, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, he doesn't define what religion is, He's saying without these things, religion is worthless. Let me put it another way. What you believe about Jesus must have some type of practical implications in the way you live your life. You see, in the next several chapters, James deals with each of these practical manifestations. But before he does that, He deals with something he wants his readers and us to be on guard against. He deals with something that we must fight against in order to seek pure religion. His word is just not for them in the past, but it speaks boldly and clearly to all of us as well. We must be on guard and fight against favoritism. Favoritism. James chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1. My brothers, 
Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, as we come to your truth, we need your spirit. As I pray and say often, preaching is nothing without the spirit's work. There's nothing without the spirit moving. He has to take what is preached and apply it to our hearts. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm just a man. Hey, I can't apply it to my own heart, be alone to everyone's hearts that's here. I need your spirit to do a mighty work. You know what we're dealing with. You know where we are. You know our struggles. You know what we need to hear. And so I pray that, that, that you would supernaturally take what is preached and then meet us where we are. Meet us where we are, Spirit. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Faith and favoritism. That's what we're going to deal with today. And the first thing we need to see is faith must be on guard against favoritism. This is what James shows us in the first three verses. He begins this chapter once again by showing his pastoral care for, his, for the Christians scattered throughout the world. My brothers, my brothers and sisters, he wants them to know, hey, before I get into this, you got to hear that I care for you. I care about your welfare. And I'm saying these things to you because I care. He says, my brothers, and he follows this with a command, something that he's forbidding them to do, a course of action he's wanting them to stop doing. He says, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. To show partiality means to play favorites. To show favoritism to one person over the other. It can also mean to have unfair biases, to be prejudiced, to discriminate. It literally means to accept someone according to their face. That's what, that's, what, that's what it literally means, to accept someone according to their face. That is based upon outward appearances, external appearances. He is telling these other believers who are scattered throughout the ancient world, do not combine your faith with partiality. Keep in mind, James in his letter is painting the picture of what it means to make one's faith practical. That's his whole intent here. In the world that you live in. These Christians were scattered throughout. They were not in the old Jerusalem anymore. They were not in Kansas anymore. They're scattered throughout. In this letter he's writing to them. In the world and the suffering and the hardships and the persecution that you're going through. How do you live out your faith? What does it mean in that type of world? In this letter he's intending to do that. And right here he's saying. Do not mix your faith with favoritism in the places that you live and operate. They are incompatible. They cannot coexist in harmony. 
Show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Holding to the faith means you continue to embrace it and extend it by living out, living it out. That's what it means. You embrace it and you extend it. You don't just embrace it and it just sit there, but it has implications in your life. Make no room for favoritism. Be on guard against it. Are you on guard against it in your life? To ensure that we have a clear understanding of what he's talking about here, James gives us an illustration that paints a picture of what it means to show favoritism. Verse 2. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing come into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing come into your assembly, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand here or sit at my feet. The setting of this illustration is assembly of believers. He ain't talking about pagans. He's not talking to unbelievers. He is talking to believers. Those who say they know Jesus. Those who say they got faith in Jesus. Those who say they are living in grace and know him. He's talking to the church. If a person enters your assembly, whether it's in a synagogue or in here, two people enter with two different external appearances. One man shows the marks of wealth, affluence, status, riches, and he walks in, head held high, wearing a golden ring, fine, bright, shiny clothing. The other man that comes shows the marks of poverty. A poor man in shabby clothing. The point here is, how are these two people going to be treated when they enter the assembly? How are they going to be greeted by the believers that are assembling together? In verse 3, we see one possibility. One is greeted and treated with favoritism. The other is treated and greeted and treated with disrespect. Totally based on how they look. Look at verse 3. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothing. And you say, you sit here in a good place. To pay attention here means, means a person is looking at something with great intent. You direct your full attention and you have a spe- special interest in what you're looking at. In other words, there is a look of favoritism in the eyes of those who do it and show it. It has a look. And that look is a window into your heart, basically, of what your heart truly values. In this context, the man dressed in the fine clothing is given special attention. The eyes of favoritism is upon him. He's basically a piece of eye candy. It's what he is. He's eye candy. Do you know what eye candy means? The dictionary meaning of the phrase? Visual images that are superficially Attractive and entertaining. Superficially. Attractive and entertaining. Outward appearances can just be that. Fake. Superficial. Eye candy. And let's face it. We all like eye candy. And if you say you don't, then you're lying. (laughs) We all do. We like the next hottest thing. We like the next hottest celebrity preacher. We do. We quote him. We like the next thing that's in. And all of us at some point show favoritism. 
We are fools for looks. Look at the culture that we live in. It loves and worships external appearances, even in the church. Status, achievements, degrees, resources, power, material possession, reputation, fame, celebrity, success. These are the people that are set up as role models. And we do it even in the church. We do. Even in church, we have our spiritualized version of it. And after the look of favoritism follows the words and deeds of favoritism. In James' illustration, the rich man is catered to. The rich man received kind words and actions from those in the assembly. You sit here in a good place. You get the best seat in the house. You don't have to sit anywhere. I want you to sit right here in the front row. You cater to him. You suck up to him. The poor, on the flip side of partiality and favoritism is what the poor man experienced, which is completely different when he came into the assembly. The poor man is not treated with the same attention and care. He comes into the assembly with shabby, filthy clothing on, probably unclean, maybe with a smell. His outward appearance is not very attractive and entertaining. So he is not paid attention to. He is overlooked, unnoticed, ignored. He receives a look of prejudice and discrimination based totally on how he looks. You see, this individual is needy, dependent, and outwardly does not appear to be successful and have nothing to offer. So what is he told to do? You stand over there, poor man, man who has nothing to offer. You stand over there. They better get, I want you to go over there, get out of the way because we don't want to see you. Be unnoticed. Better yet, sit at my feet like a pit because you're beneath me. I'm better than you. You got to understand, that's what those words mean. You, ain't, you didn't say that, but that's what they mean. I'm better than you. I'm different than you. I'm in a different class than you. So move aside. Harsh. Do you see what favoritism does? It steps all over one person's dignity while it caters and elevates another person's. Know that. You step all over one person's dignity while you cater and elevate another person's. And all of it is based upon external appearances, which are premature assumptions. Because external appearances tell you nothing about the person at all at all. Tells you zero about it. You know they say we make assumptions. As human beings, we are naturally inclined to be one-sided. This is what Cornelius Van Til says. We are naturally inclined to be one-sided people. And favoritism reveals our inclination to favor one person over another. We are naturally inclined to think we're better than other people. More superior than others. Do you have unfair biases? Are you prejudiced? Most people say, I'm not. Do you discriminate? Have you ever been on the receiving end of discrimination? If you have, you know what it feels like. It's not a good feeling. Have you ever been treated with favoritism? We love that side of it. Whose dignity have you stumped on this week? Whose? And whose dignity have you elevated and worshipped 
because of your favoritism. It's incompatible with the faith. You must be on guard against it. You must have a sense of conviction about it when you do it. You see, you don't have to live in it, but you should be convicted about it when the Spirit shows it to you in your heart. This is what James is getting to in verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's what the question is meant to do. To convict you. To convict you. The answer to the question is yes. We have made distinctions. I'm guilty. I've done it. Making distinctions means to be divided against oneself. And I think this means that the distinctions being made between the rich man and poor man come is a, from a heart problem of those making the distinctions. What do you mean by that, Alex? What I mean is that those who say they have the same faith in Jesus, that faith was not overflowing into the way they dealt with other people. It wasn't changing the way they viewed other people. You can't come to faith in Jesus and not change the way you see other people and how you treat others. They were holding to the faith, but they were not convicted by the way they were treating other people. James seeks to bring a sense of conviction to his readers and to you. Not to beat you up, not to kick you when you're down, but to reveal sin so you can repent of sin. He says... They have become judges or evil thoughts. In other words, you are evil thinking judge, motivated by evil. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor to defer to the rich and great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Why do you think James says those who show partiality have become judges with evil thoughts. What do you think he means by that? You see, there's something behind your favoritism. You know what it is? Selfishness. Do you think you actually love the person you're showing favoritism to? Really? Do you actually think you love them? No. You don't love them. No more than you love the poor person. You love what you can benefit from them. You love what they have to offer you. Favoritism is all about you and what you can get. How that person can benefit you. That's the evil behind it. Pretend to be loved, but you worship what they have because you want it for yourself. It's all about you and your benefit. Another Christian says, favoritism based on external considerations is inconsistent with the faith in the one who came to break down barriers of nationality, race, class, gender, and religion. Think about this. The favor you have from God, is it based on your external appearances? Oh, now we're connecting the dots, aren't we? The favor you have with God, is it based upon your external appearance and how you look? We're getting into the faith now, holding on to it. If God was show favorites based upon how we externally look, 
who could actually stand before him. It was all based upon how you looked, how you dressed, how you performed, how many people you got saved, how many Bible studies you led. Are you still standing? Are you still with favor? Are you still the good Christian? If it's based upon your external appearance, his acceptance of you. If your answer is no, then why do you treat other people that way? Why do you treat other people that way? 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. Your favor from God the Father is not based on your outward appearance. It's totally based upon his unmerited favor given to you because of what Jesus did on the cross. He died as your substitute. He took your sin, your junk, your issues, your mess upon himself and gave you his righteousness. And because of Jesus, you have God's favor, his grace and his mercy. And you continue to hold on to that and embrace it, but you extend it to other people as well. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you do it for other people. That's what it means. And get, living in favoritism is contrary to the gospel that saved you. Because if God did that, none of us can stand. If he judged on favoritism, the Pharisees will all be really Christians. Because they much better than we were. They are. C.S. Lewis says, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you will be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, in some degree, we helping each other to one of other of these destinations. Favoritism helps other people to become objects that we worship. And when you discriminate another person, you do the reverse of that. So where are you leading people by how you treat them? Are you building them up? Are you building up their dignity? Are you destroying it? Are you worshiping it? Favoritism is contrary to the pure religion that James is talking about. It hinders you from doing it. Or the practical, practical manifestation of pure religion, or brighter tongue, visit the orphans and widows and their affliction, affliction, and keep oneself unstained from the world. Favoritism breaks all three. Favoritism doesn't bridle the tongue; it uses the tongue to shame and hurt the poor, and to worship and idolize the rich by sucking up to them, hanging on to their coattail, laughing at jokes that are not funny. <laughs> We all do it, yeah. <laughs> Religion does not help the poor, but it steps all over their dignity. And religion and favoritism is worldliness. It's worldliness. It's soaked in worldliness. It's a currency of the world. And how many of you are dealing in that currency? It has no place in the kingdom of our God and King. 
while I was in college, I went on a two-month two month mission trip to Johannesburg, South Africa. And we were there for you know, two months doing ministry on the college campus. And the church we went to was, I think, maybe downtown Joburg. And the church had a, a worship service for the homeless after the regular worship service. Um, and the service went down in, in the basement of the church. You know, after the service, we fed them a meal, and we, been, and we talked with them, we shared the gospel with them. At the time, I thought this was kind of awesome. And when I look back over that, I'm thinking, in ministering to the homeless in that community, did that separate service help them, or did it hurt them by them meeting in the basement of the church? Did it, did it help their dignity, or did it hurt their dignity? Man, I can't answer that question, but I didn't ask, ask any of them. I'm just assuming here. But I know what I learned from that experience. You see, the smells that I smelled and the appearances I saw that those Sundays I were there, that was how I looked and smelled before God, before he would save me from my sin and ministry. And how dare I look down and think I'm more superior to anyone when that is me and that is you. Here at the Village Church, we would not practice favoritism over one person over another. It would not be accepted here. We can struggle with it, but we're not going to live in it. And you have freedom to call me out on it if you see me doing it. And I'll do the same to you in love. <laughs> here at the Village Church, we are never going to have separate services for those whose struggles are different than ours. Ain't happening. Here at the Village Church, everyone is welcome to worship with our family, no matter where you walk or life you come from. Why? We are mutually broken people. And we all got issues. And if you don't believe that, then this ain't the church for you. Because you're going to be uncomfortable. Because you're trying to hide yours. You don't have to hide it. If a person enters this church looking like he or she has a lot of issues, and that person sits by you, don't change your seat. Don't get up and go sit someone else. Why? Why? Because Jesus sat by you and still does. Think he's going to get up and leave you? How dare you do that to someone else? Be Jesus to that person like Jesus is Jesus to you. Beloved of God, show no favoritism as you hold to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. I thank you, Father, that you still sat by me. And you're never going to get up. You knew me even before I was created. You knew when you went to the cross that I was going to still struggle with sin. I was going to say things I shouldn't say. I'm not always going to be loving. You're not surprised. We often think you're surprised by our sin. We're the only ones surprised. You know that we're but dust. We keep thinking we're going to be more than dust. That's all we are. But I thank you that we have a great high priest whose name is love. That he forever intercedes on our behalf. And I pray, Lord, as a church, as leaders in this church, that, Lord, you will continue to show us um, sin, help us to show us if we are being showing favoritism and living in it, and help us to repent of it. You know, we're going to struggle with things. I mean, we're not going to be perfect, but, Lord, we can repent and move on and keep short accounts. Help us to keep short accounts, too, with one another. We're a bunch of sinners here, and, 
and we, we think we're going to always have this love affair thing, and everything's always great, and the village church is awesome. It's coming. We're going to get on each other's nerves. We're going to do things that everyone's not going to like. But that's when we've got to really eye on our unity in Christ, that our love for one another is greater than the issues that are going to come up in our church, and that's what we rely on to get through the things that come down the road. And so I pray as we go out into this world, I pray your spirit will be over us and our families and our kids and that you, Lord, remind us of your goodness. And as we celebrate Thanksgiving, our families that are coming in town and traveling, be over everyone and help us to count our blessings because we should be thankful for all that you've done for us. And we are in Christ's name I pray. Amen.